the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It has been a fun week at the General Assembly. Fun because we are getting out for spring break. But before we get to that, Sky, we had Senator Jim Perry uh, in the office on Monday and, and we sat down with an interview with him. Yeah, we will hear that later in the podcast, but it was a good conversation and one we think that everyone will enjoy. So it was another full week. We are recording this on Wednesday. The General Assembly is heading for a spring break. Yes, they are. Both the House and the Senate are taking off next week for a spring break and we will be out of town as well. So we're just going to get right out of the gate and say House and Senate get the Do Politics Better Award this week because their agreement in taking a spring break in the same week means that lobbyists and staffers at the General Assembly, especially those in central staff that serve both chambers, that means we get to kind of have a breather. It's not that we get off work, uh, but we get a week off and we don't have to go down to the General Assembly. I remember in last biennium when the House took the July 4th week off, the Senate didn't, and there were bills filed in committees, and it was just difficult because you had to remain on and be there even though only one chamber was participating. The members, they voted in their caucuses when they wanted to take the spring break, and congratulations, you get the Do Politics Better Award this week. Yesterday, the General Assembly had a special guest. Everyone was talking about it. He was lighting up social media. I started seeing photographs on members' Facebook pages. Congressman Madison Cawthorn was spotted in the General Assembly. He is a freshman and has certainly made a lot of news. He was a speaker at the January 6th event, shall we say, or insurrection, depending on how you want to look at it. Having him in the General Assembly really continued to spark those rumors that there will be someone challenging him in a primary election in his district. One of the things I noticed yesterday, I saw House members getting their photograph with Congressman Cawthorn. I didn't see anyone in the Senate get their photograph, and the rumor has been and this is just a rumor, is that Senator Chuck Edwards, who represents uh, Henderson County, just a little bit of Buncombe County, and a lot of overlap with Congressman Cawthorn, he is being, has been talked about as a challenger in a primary to the congressman. Yes, that has been the rumor for a little bit of time, and I think that Senator Edwards has not denied that rumor, which could be as good as acceptance of it. Yeah, we've seen a lot of high-profile bills that Senator Edwards has filed in the General Assembly, some having to do uh, with law enforcement. Some have been kind of red meat issues to Republican voters. He's filed some some immigration legislation. He is a uh, businessman up that way. I think he owns a, some McDonald's franchises. He's very conservative. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that race shapes up. Obviously, Madison Cawthorn, Congressman Cawthorn, has embraced that Trump style of Republicanism. I think Senator Edwards, while very conservative, uh, may be more of a uh, conservative business type of, of, of candidate. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I have a prediction 
We're going to see Madison Cawthorn in the General Assembly a lot, especially when we get closer to drawing the maps. Yeah, and he is sort of a celebrity because he is so high profile, um, more than some of our other members of Congress are. We did have more news from Governor Cooper. He issued some executive orders this week. There were a few things that were set to expire today on March 31st. So on April 1st, things like the eviction moratorium would have been rescinded and as well as to go alcohol. So that's something that I think a lot of folks had interest in and also extending that unemployment insurance. All of those were things set to expire today. So we got that last minute executive order in to ensure that those would be extended. I, I didn't see, like, like you said, nothing too controversial. I, I do see this eviction moratorium issue coming up. I've heard some rumblings. And again, we don't, uh, this isn't an issue we work on, but I have heard uh, those who are property owners are having a very difficult time collecting rent and there is no recourse for them. And it kind of plays in, we talked about this last week, it plays into this narrative that we're hearing from the General Assembly. They seem to be really put out just the governor making these executive orders, especially while they're in town. One would could say that the General Assembly's job is to make law, and Governor Cooper is essentially making law himself. Yeah, it's a, it's a classic battle, and we'll see how it plays out. One of the senators that has really... <laughs> He has been holding Governor Cooper accountable for some of these executive orders. If you follow him on social media, which I encourage you to do, if you hear him at the General Assembly, he spends a lot of time talking about the executive branch power and the legislative branch power. It is a classic conflict in in politics. But, you know, we had Senator Perry here at this table to talk about his brand of politics. When he sat down, Brian got red in the face. He was very excited and nervous. And so just admittedly, Brian has a little crush on him. <laughs> this is an ongoing debate in our office. I do think a lot of Senator Jim Perry and for several reasons. One, he's from Eastern North Carolina. He has a very compelling story uh, growing up in Deep Run, North Carolina, which is in Lenore County. I am from Duplin County. I know this community he lives in. Uh, he, he also does politics in a very unique way, and, and I admire it. Uh, he was one of our first guests at this table for our Do Politics Better dinner, and I appreciated that. But you're going to hear a little bit about that uh, in this interview, and let's hear it now. Senator Jim Perry, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. So you were born in Lenore County, right? Deep Run? That's right. And you represent Lenore County and Wayne County. Can you tell us a little bit about your district? Uh, sure. It's uh, located in the eastern part of the state, so I'm probably about an hour and 20 minutes uh, from downtown Raleigh. And uh, Lenore and Wayne counties are they're both tier one counties, you know, largely agrarian economy down that way. We do have a military base in Wayne County uh, with Seymour Johnson. And, you know, so those are our, our number one and number two economic drivers in the state. But um, Lenore County at one time was one of the world's foremost tobacco exporting um, centers on the East Coast. 
So if you think about over time the impact of the loss of, of big tobacco and also textiles, we had a, a DuPont plant um, was very impactful on the area. So we lost a lot of jobs and a lot of population over time. Could you tell us the story of how you became involved in politics and what made you want to be more involved? Sure, um, and I, I joke that I was, I was never really interested in politics and I'm still not very interested in politics, but uh, politics had an interest in me. Um, I had really never been involved with um, party politics or even local politics. I think I was more like the majority of, of the population in that, you know, I would even skip those parts of the newspaper because it was just so noisy and uh, not really interesting. And uh, I had gone to work for a small family-owned business uh, years before that had uh, experienced a, a lot of success and growth, and I was uh, a member of the management team and had a, uh, a small ownership position in that company. But I, I that represented basically all of my net worth. Uh, my, my life savings <laughs> were in that company. We had sold it to a private equity firm in 2006, and, um, you know, I had rolled proceeds from that sale and um, was really depending on that for my, my future. And some legislation was introduced that, it, and the company I worked for had been a, a family-owned business for a number of years, so this wasn't uh, necessarily aimed at, at us, but there was some concerns about um, companies coming in from out of state in that industry and the impact it would have on, on uh, uh, other providers here in North Carolina. I was in the dental space. Um, and legislation was introduced that would have literally put us out of business overnight. So every dollar that I had invested in that company would have disappeared overnight. And I remember laying in bed at night, literally uh, couldn't sleep, uh, staring at the ceiling. I have three daughters. And I was wondering, you know, how, how am I going to pay to put these children through college? How am I going to pay for three weddings? I mean, honestly, I was thinking, how am I going to make this house payment, you know, if this happens? Because in eastern North Carolina, there, there really uh, aren't that many job opportunities. It's not like we get a, a new big business every week. So it was, uh, it was scary. And fear is a very powerful motivator. Uh, the bill was introduced in the Senate. I think it, it ran through 48-0, um, you know, about three days after we knew about it. And um, we had to catch up in the House. We, we, none of us really knew anything about politics, but I, I feel like I got a PhD very quickly in, in how things work. And, you know, we had to get up here and learn to walk the halls and talk to lawmakers um, in very small time frames. We, we engaged our first lobbyist. And at the time, we were not necessarily looking for um, Republican votes or Democrat votes. We were looking for votes, right. you know, looking for friends, right. anyone. And uh, Ruth Samuelson was still alive, and uh, Speaker Tillis uh, had Ruth work on this issue uh, a great deal in the House and uh, learned a lot about the political process. I, I don't think I'd ever written substantial um, donations before that mm -hmm. point. You know, I, I laugh at people now when. Um, lawmakers who will complain about how hard it is to raise money and i remember when i used to reach out to them to raise money and right. the, the small checks they would 
you know, give me for fundraisers for people because that, that's when I really got involved in, in the fundraising aspect because you realize that there are certain people that they were just very decent to you and, and you want to see them come back, mm -hmm. right? And then there were others that, well, maybe, maybe you didn't feel that way. Right. Uh, so you'd work hard for whomever would be their opponent. Um, Did it shape the way you interact with lobbyists today and interest groups as far as they're coming into your office and there's different levels of desperation I'm sure you hear. So I, I think it's fair to say that I, I learned a lot about um, lobbying during that time and, and since then and you know there were lobbyists on the other side of the issue and what I, I have learned to be able to do is just admire someone's ability or tradecraft, you know, and how everyone approaches it a little different. Some folks are more just totally relationship driven. Some are very um, technically oriented on aspects of legislation. Some are all about the policy. Some are all about the politics. Um, everyone has their unique style and, um, you know, it, it works differently for all of them actually had some guys on the other side of the issue that oh I hated them at that time okay. uh, but it was because they were so good at what they did uh, it's funny I advise people now if they're about to engage in a big fight or something that I know is going to be kind of tough I'll just point out that it it is expensive to go that way and it's typically better when you can work something out. I, I think because of going through that and remembering how comforting it was to get an update um, from the lobbyist about what's going on at the General Assembly, um, I think it, it made me accept more meetings with lobbyists when I, I got up here than really than I, I probably should because there's, there's only so many hours in the day. but. Um, especially when it's something regarding you know, potentially anti-competitive behavior. I, I tend to tend to make room for those folks because I've, you know, I've been there and almost, um, almost been burned by it. And I, I try to understand issues um, instead of just relying on everyone else's feelings about it or a preconceived notion. I really want to dig in and understand it. Um, I communicate very directly with lobbyists, good, bad, or ugly. Um, and I, I think some of that came from my time in operations and even I began my career as an executive recruiter because yes was great, um, no I could live with, but you know that I don't know or maybe man that was the most terrible horrible thing in the world and I, I think the same thing's true for a lobbyist. I'm, it's not fair for you to continue wasting your time on me if I know that I, I just can't get there for you. Um, and so I, I've always preferred candor and communication. I know everyone does not feel that way. Um, there are people who believe in the, the soft no, and they think that's more effective and better in politics. Um, I'm just not one of those people. I, I prefer to know. You know, I want to shift focus and go work on something else. Speaking of working with others and state government, let's talk about working with the House. This is your second term, your first elected term. Is mm -hmm. that right? That's right. What is the difference between the House and the Senate from your perspective? So it, it's always funny to, to hear the, the stories and the accusations from the, the House to the Senate and the Senate to the House. The Imperial Senate, some call it. <laughs> we are the upper chamber. <laughs> um, I like throwing that out, too, to my, my friends. So, you know, it, it's a little different for me. And I, I, I try to be objective even 
regarding my, my own opinions. I, I try to, to dig through them, but um, I, I do think there are some perceptions out there that the House is more about populism and the Senate is more about pragmatism. Um, and I'll say in some instances that seems to hold some water. The problem you've got is you can't paint everyone in the Senate or everyone in the House with a broad brush, right? It just, it doesn't work that way. And, and everyone has their, their own individual brain. Um, and, and hopefully they, they use them from time to time. Uh, I try at least once a week. But, you know, you know some of those things are, I think, unfair. Um, you know, we'll, we'll always hear that the House is more spendy I think is the term, you know, more loose fiscally and the Senate is more fiscally conservative. I think it's fair to say that the Senate is more fiscally conservative in their approaches. Does it mean that everyone in the House is a spendthrift? No, I, I think it's simple math. They have twice as many members, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and all of their members have things that they want to accomplish for the, the areas and the people that they represent. So I I think it's just a, a product of math in, in, any, in, in most instances. Um, we have a little harder line on mandates because everyone, nothing's free, right? And, and I, I have constituents that believe that if we'll pass a law and make um, evil company X, quote, pay for something, that they get it for free. And that's just not how it works. That cost gets passed along to someone uh, someone's going to be paying it. The, the owner of business, if we increase taxes on them, the owner of business, typically they're not going to say, okay, well, that's fair. I'll just take less money. You know, they risk their capital and got in that business because they wanted to be an entrepreneur. They wanted to make money. So my guess is they either pass that cost along to someone or they have one less employee or, you know, the, the world's just not simple as the way some would, I think, want it to be. Um, you know, it's also harder to come to agreement, I think, in the House, and, and I see negotiations take longer. But again, in, in my opinion, that's another product of math. There's more people mm -hmm. that you have to reach center on an agreement, you know, to to bring them along. So I think it's, it's harder. Uh, I joke that it's like herding cats over there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we, we have our own discussions in the Senate. I, I think we, we do them a little differently. Um, not that that's good or bad. It's just it's just different, different approach. I, you know, I've got a lot of friends over there. Sure. I, in fact, I, I knew more people in the house when I first got up here because that's who I'd gotten to know over the years. Um, that's where we were able to stop legislation. So it's uh, it's a little awkward for me. I do feel like I got the side eye a bit from some folks in the Senate. You know, <laughs> wondering earlier what that meant, and they they jokingly call me the house whisperer. I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're you're on to something. So I've, I've been down there for twenty some years, and I I, th I do think it comes down to math. It's it's uh, the house has always been kind of more of a wild wild west approach. The Senate's been buttoned down, and and I think it comes down to numbers and and even the fiscal conservatism. I know uh, Senator Baz Knight was a Democrat. Tony Rand was a Democrat, but they certainly ran it more fiscally conservatively than than the House. And I want to talk about Senator Baz Knight and Senator Rand. Um, the other day, uh, you were in a committee and you cited Senator Baz Knight and Senator Rand in your very pointed comments um, to Director Bell uh, mm -hmm. of, of the State Board of Elections. 
when I first met you, I, I was inviting you to a Do Politics Better dinner, which you attended, and, and we appreciate. And I'd spent some time on your Twitter account, and so I saw things like you, you were just as inclined to, to give an accolade to Senator Dan Blue, the minority leader. Uh, recently, you've retweeted some congratulations to Michael Regan. Very conservative. Your voting record's conservative. But you do politics a little different than than a lot of politicians down here. There are friendships across the aisle, but can you talk a little bit about the Senator Jim Perry philosophy of politics? Because it's, it is noticeable. Yeah, and, and thanks for that. I, I think that, um, you know, number one, we're, we're all human. And uh, with uh, Secretary Regan to, to reach that post at such an early age, that is laudable. Right, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment early in his career. Um, the guy's from Eastern North Carolina, forget political labels. It's a, it's a huge achievement for anyone. And um, you know, where I'm from, you're supposed to congratulate people and, and recognize uh, excellence. I think it's the reasonable thing to do. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's who I want to be. I wanna be able to do those things. And, you know, with Senator Blue, I, I have made public comments. There are, I think, perceptions out there on both sides of the aisle from people who don't know um, Senator Blue or don't know Senator Berger. And uh, I, I tell them when I interact with them that they would be absolutely shocked. Uh, number one, I, I believe that, that Dan Blue is a gentleman. Um, super intelligent, I, I think a, a very good human and uh, just all around good person. We, we might have some disagreements on some policy issues. Um, but, you know, I have disagreements on policy issues with my wife. Uh, and, and if anyone is married out there, don't tell me you agree on everything. It, it doesn't mean that, that you have to hate somebody because you see a point differently or you have a different philosophy. Um, Senator Berger is, you know, I, I see these political cartoons about him and I, I hear uh, people express their opinions, and, and frankly, they have no idea what they're talking about. Um, I, I don't know that I've met a more appropriate, gracious human who is a man of his word, just like Dan Blue is. And they have a, in my opinion, my words, not theirs, a special relationship that there's trust there. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if Phil gives Dan his word, Dan knows he's going to keep it. And if Dan gives Phil his word, he knows he's going to keep it. And I think we need more of that. We, we've had people pushed so far apart by um, national political issues or, or different groups. Um, there's a lot of really decent humans in the General Assembly, just, just good people. We have asked everyone this who comes to the table, so we'll ask you, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and fix one thing that's wrong with our politics right now that kind of emphasizes that polarization, what would it be? So I'm, I'm a fan of, and maybe it's because I'm conservative, right? Let's get that joke out of the way. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a fan of the way things used to be in, in those regards. And I, I think back even to the days of um, Governor Hunt being in office and him walking the halls and actually, you know, knew lawmakers, knew their, what they wanted for their districts, knew... Um, you know, what they needed and the, the deal-making that, that took place at that time. I remember 
I tell a story and he'll he'll kill me for it. But when Kevin Howell uh, worked for him, um, flipping a ton of votes one night on the House floor, I, it was like ten or eleven votes. It was an amazing story. That doesn't happen anymore, right. and uh, we're so polarized, and, and you you get pushed apart in your district. You get pushed apart up here on some issues, but you know my my district has very unique needs. Uh, as compared to some others. And um, I, I miss the days that you didn't know how a vote was necessarily going to turn out. And you mentioned Senator Bass Knight and Senator Rand earlier, and specifically the, the meeting with uh, Director Brinson Bell. And I'll say this, in, in my opinion, and I, I had met Senator Bass Knight years ago, I only met Senator Rand in passing when he was um, already a little a little up in age. But from what I know and, and what I've read about those two individuals, they didn't care who was in the governor's office. Democrat, Republican, it did not matter. Yeah. Uh, if you did something that they felt disrespected that chamber and the members, I don't mean the Democrat members, I mean the members, um, they would have made their opinions known. They would have sent a message. And, you know, if you think about it for, I look back, like starting in 1931, 70 of 72 years up to about, um, I think, 2002 or something like that, there were Democrat supermajorities in that Senate. You know, and the House only popped out a little what when um, Brubaker was Speaker, so mid-90s. So for all that time, you, you had the same political party, uh, but don't think for one moment that, either the House or the Senate, even though they're controlled by Democrats, had Democrat governors, they were not going to be told what to do by That's the right. governor, right? Yes. I mean, it, it was a different day, and, and they demanded that respect of the chamber and their, their members uh, on both sides. You know, I, I love hearing stories like when, when Dan Blue and uh, Martin Nesbitt, Nesbitt and Toby Fitch and those guys were in the House. Gang of eight. Oh, they, they, they led some times, and I... I, I joke with uh, Senator Blue and Senator Fitch about some of it now, but I, I love to hear those old stories and that that spirit that they had. So people who think that there's so much more animosity or, or fighting now, it's, no, you're just paying attention to some things, and social media puts it in front of you. Um, but I, I, I promise, I, I think it was Governor Easley that held a judgeship open for over a year trying to get uh, now Senator Fitch out of the General Assembly and yeah. get him out of his hair because, but those guys, they, they were effective. They were passionate. They knew what they believed in. They stuck together and uh, they didn't get pushed around. You know, it was a different world. So is it social media then? Is it, is it, is it, is, is that what it is? Is that we're always on and, and so at night, all we see are the Twitter wars and we see the Facebook memes. Do we need to get off social media or what do we need to do, Senator, to, to actualize what you would like to see happen, which is more deal making, votes that are less predictable, where you could flip 11 votes? Is that what, 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 what's the magic wand here? What do we have to do to get back to, to the way it was? I don't know that I believe there's any magic wand and I, or any one lever. I, I think it's more like soup. You know, there's a lot of different elements of it. I, I do think, you know, if you, you think back to when the budget was vetoed last biennium, remember over half of North Carolinians didn't know that the budget was vetoed. So... 
while I think there's more awareness because of social media, there's still a lot of people. Remember, just like I said, I was, man, I didn't pay attention to that stuff. It's so noisy, you know, when I was younger. Um, there's still a lot of people that don't know. I, I do think the ones who are quasi plugged in, they're hyper exposed now. You know, they're watching their favorite news network, whatever it is. They're in their echo chamber with their friends. And it's a lot of homogenous thought that, that flows and they pat each other on the back and talk about how they're right in their opinion. Instead of spending time with someone who may have sincerely held beliefs that maybe they're, you know, 50% different, 25%, I don't know. But we, we seem to have lost, many people seem to have lost that ability to sit down and, you know, just have dinner and talk about 12 things. No, you're going to disagree on three of them, but hey, it's just a different perspective different point of view. Now it seems to be that if, if you do have those three things and you automatically have to be outraged and hate that person and their family and the car they drive and, you know, their dog, it's, it's a little, little crazy for me. Yeah. The dog is too far. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Senator Perry, we want to thank you for being on the podcast this week and thank you for all you do for your district and the state of North Carolina. You certainly know how to do politics better and We appreciate you. Well, thank you for having me. That was really a great interview. I appreciated um, a lot of what Senator Perry had to say. Uh, Interesting um, perspective. Yeah, it was a great interview. And one of the things that he highlighted is that he wished there would be more unpredictable votes in the General Assembly, that everything, you know how things are going to turn out going in. You have talked a lot about that earlier in your career when the house was split 60-60. Tell me more about that. One of the things that I think how the General Assembly runs now is that almost everything is caucused. Everything is caucused. And that used to not be the case. We should back up and explain the caucus. Do you want to explain what the caucuses are and how they operate on a daily basis? Your general caucuses are the Republican caucus and the Democratic caucus. And each chamber meets with their respective members. So the Republican members meet and the Democratic members meet. And they discuss issues, who's going to speak on a bill, things like that. So it's kind of like a huddle before the session begins, and they go through the bills, as you said. One of the things, it's not to say Democrats and Republicans didn't caucus. They did caucus, but what they did not require, which is what is called the Hastert rule, which is the way our caucuses operate now, in order for a bill to be agreed upon that it's going to move to the House floor, it's going to be voted on, the caucus takes a vote. And if you get the majority of your Republican caucus to say this is a good bill, the bill moves forward. This was a very rarely used tool back in the mid-2000s. In fact, Senator Mark Basnight would oftentimes get a vote count from his caucus And he would go over to the Republican caucus and say, what's your vote count? If we have enough votes, let's move this bill to the Senate floor. And Jim Black operated in a very similar way. Now, there were occasions on the big lightning bills, you know, uh, guns, abortion, things like that. They would have caucus issues, but it was not uncommon to see a bill pass, barely. It was not uncommon to see a bill fail. It was not uncommon to see the Speaker of the House have to break a tie. 
And I think you have fewer uh, surprises now because when they come out of that caucus room, they've already counted the votes and they know that they have a majority of their caucus. Therefore, they are going to vote for the bill. You may have a straggler here or there, but I think a lot of it, a lot of that predictability is due to the fact that we caucus every single issue and amendment. And I think if we were to get back to just the caucuses working together, we would have one, more bipartisanship, and two, we would have more fun because the, the uh, outcome would not be predetermined. It's very rare to see a bill fail on the floor of the House or the Senate. In fact, everyone was shocked when the Senate took up the governor's veto override and kind of the rumbling about school reopening, the veto override about school reopening, kind of the rumbling was they must have the numbers. Why would they bring up an override vote if it's going to fail unless it was for just political purposes? So when that happened, I think that was a shock to folks. Yeah. But there is one area of unpredictability, and we saw this play out this week. Uh, You've been working on an issue directly, uh, and that is in the committees. The committees really still are the wild, wild west. A bill comes to a committee. Oftentimes, it depends on who's in their seats and who's not in their seats. So I've seen committees where Democrats all are there, Republicans are not there, and Democrats rule the committee there for an hour. But today we saw this, again, we're recording this on Wednesday. We saw a a little shootout, if you will, in a Judiciary Three committee in the House. And walk us through that. There was a bill, and I think the original bill as filed had a lot of bipartisan support and Tons of people had signed on as co-sponsors to this bill. And when it got to committee today, it was rolled into a House proposed committee substitute. And that proposed committee substitute did many things. And this is something that I have been working on all week. We represent the Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And the original domestic violence bill would have broadened who could get a domestic violence protective order. The proposed committee substitute really narrowed who could get a domestic violence protective order. So there was a survivor who spoke in committee. There was a detective who spoke in committee. And our staff attorney at the coalition all spoke against the changes in the bill. And because of those concerns, multiple people on the committee were like, hey, shouldn't we fix some of these before moving the committee, proposed committee substitute forward? And there was a motion to lay it on the table. And what was interesting in there was that motion was made and then Representative Deb Butler called for division and raised her hand. And so when a member calls for division, instead of just a voice vote, they either stand up or raise their hands so you can see who voted for or against the motion. And when that happened, there were the hands of all of the Democrats up, and then slowly, it was very slow, a few Republicans put their hands up too. 
I want to be specific here. I was I was watching the committee. It started with a freshman legislator, Representative Charlie Miller. He represents uh, Brunswick County, a little bit of New Hanover County, former law enforcement. He seemed to be compelled by the arguments being made by law enforcement, and he voted with the Democrats. And you're right, I saw slowly the other Republicans, their hands went up. Uh, it was it was an interesting moment. Again, you don't see a Democratic motion, which is a motion essentially to delay this bill for another committee meeting, uh, prevail. But it came down, I think, to two things: uh, Republicans and Democrats. They were both they both showed up. Yep. But it took one Republican to side with the Democrats, and it was like birds on a wire. He left, and the other ones followed him. Let's dig a little bit deeper about the PCS. We talked about the proposed committee substitute in episode two. If you want to learn about the PCS, go back to our podcast, episode number two. But I want to talk about how this PCS got there. You were working with the bill sponsor, and the bill was as you wanted it to be. And then we learned yesterday that there would be a proposed committee substitute. The bill sponsor wasn't exactly happy about his bill being changed. But there is a privilege in committee where a chairperson can take any bill that is in his or her committee and can change it. So Chairman Lee Zachary, in consultation with Representative Sarah Stevens, they changed Representative Harry Warren's bill. Kind of an awkward moment, right? Because you could tell there was some discomfort from the bill sponsor. He did not explicitly say he was opposed to the changes, but he did explicitly say, my bill just changed two words, uh, to let everybody know, like, these are not my changes. So he made that clear in the committee. There was also an argument when Representative Butler made her motion to delay the bill. There was an argument that gets made a lot, and, and I'm, this, it's kind of an interesting argument where legislators who want the bill to move say, you know, there are so many steps that the bill has to take. It's got to go to the Rules Committee. It's got to go to the House. Then it's got to go to the Senate. And they'll say, I vow to work with you as the bill moves. And it's kind of an interesting um, defense to put up. But Representative Greer Martin, who was video conferencing into the committee, he made a classic argument to that. You want to talk about that? Sure. So what's interesting about the Judiciary Committees is that they are made up of attorneys and some non-attorneys, but those committees are considered to be working committees. They are the committees that make those changes and debate really what's in the bill. The rules committee is more of just like your stamp before going to the floor. There isn't a ton of debate that happens in rules. So he made that argument, this is the right committee for us to be working on this in. I think this is the place that we need to make those changes. So you're heading out of town this weekend. I am. I'm heading out of state. Heading out of state. Now, where are you going and why? I am going to Tennessee for the wedding of Britt Eller and Corey Bryson. All right. So Britt Eller is an advisor and so is Corey Bryson. They are advisors to Speaker of the House Tim Moore. And they are getting married on Saturday. That is exciting news. Yes, it'll be a full legislative 
wedding, I think there will be a good amount of legislators there. Just goes to show that love can be found at the General Assembly, Sky. Yeah, there are a couple other folks that we know who are either currently engaged or have been married who met at the General Assembly. David Capen, who works for Majority Leader John Bell, is engaged to Rachel Reese. Uh, she works for Representative Charlie Miller. Yeah. Uh, Blair Burr worked for Representative Justin Burr, got married and had a baby. Weird how that works. So, you know, it's it's kind of a weird place to work. It's not known for its beauty and the building. It's kind of this 50-year-old mid-century architecture that's kind of funky. It's a fast-paced world. There's a lot going on. Who would have thought that love could be found? Well, we want to wish the very best to Britt Eller and Corey Bryson. Congratulations to you. We hope it is a wonderful wedding. I hope you have a great time in Tennessee. We are looking forward to spring break next week. We will be back next week with a podcast. We're going to be so rested. Hope you have a great weekend and a great week. And remember to do politics better.